0: Welcome to the City Beautiful Church podcast. Thank you for taking the time to join our family as we strive to live together in heavenly reality. For more great content, visit us online at citybeautiful.ch. All right, everyone go ahead and take your seats. Good to see you all, good to see you all. Welcome to City Beautiful Church. Uh, Today, we are beginning a new series, which I'm terribly, terribly excited about, Um, Jonathan and I had been working on this, uh, several weeks ago. Um, so just as a reminder, as a refresher, um, we have this vision for the year. So what happens in our community, the way that we do this, I know different people do it in different ways is, uh, we bring our leaders together every October or so, and we pray and we ask the Lord, uh, for some sort of vision. So within our leadership group and our elders, Um, during that time of prayer, some people might hear a particular word. They might really pick up on the temperature in our community. They might have a vision or a scripture or whatever it is. We bring it together and we start to share and we see, okay, what's, what's the common factor? Like what's the Lord saying to us? And that's kind of how we discern vision. Uh, and then I put it together, um, in words and then we come up with something. So this past year we've been, this has been our yearly vision from the throne flows, a river of renewal that last year we talked a lot about allegiance to King Jesus first and foremost, like making this full bodied pursuit of Jesus, what we're about as a community. And so the second year has really been what, when we do that, when we realign all of our priorities, everything it means to be a human, to be gathered up behind Christ, what kind of flows from that? How does that change uh, us? How does that change our approach to the world? So The first series of the year, Um, we talked about renewing our vision of the Old Testament, that a lot of us uh, don't read the Old Testament. We don't see the point of it. And so how do we redeem the lenses through which we read the Old Testament looking for Christ? Um, And then the second series that we did, um, this past series, was really about how do we redeem that outward posture that we're all called to have um, as Christians, for the sake of the world, um, how do we redeem ideas like uh, justice, evangelism, missions, and so on? And so, our new series—we're um, going to be kind of coming back in and talking about us. Uh, and so, our new series is called "A Generous Common Life." Okay, I forgot it for a second, but that's why we've got graphics. Uh, and I'm—I'm really—I'm really really excited and intrigued. So. Uh, in the in the last uh, in this last series, we we briefly talked about this passage in Galatians six verses one to ten, um, and it was always kind of at the end of one of the messages that I gave um, as a way to kind of recenter us on like. This is the priority of what it means to be the people of God, the community. Um, And it really resonated with a lot of folks. And so as I was praying through it, I really felt like um, the Lord was inviting us to sit there for a little bit longer. So in this series, um, we're actually going to be looking at Galatians 6, 1 through 10 for about three months. We're going to do three months on like one passage of, of scripture as our focal point and kind of using that to jump into other places. Uh, Because I think it really stirred up a lot in us, these things that are really worth us talking about. Um, And it's going to be, in that spirit of renewal, about renewing our approach to fellowship. Like, who are we to be to one another? Um, Because we believe, as a community, that the way in which we love one another uh, is the best demonstration to the world of what it looks like when God is King. That's why we're here. And that's what God is doing in the church. So I'm going to pray. Um, and today we're just going to kind of have a brief overview of this passage. So heavenly father, we testify to the truth that you're here, that you're with us, that you are for us. You're not against us. Lord, we thank you for everything that you, um, that you spoke over us and that you revealed in this last series. And we pray the same for this one, that we have an open-handed expectancy, that you're going to to speak new and beautiful things, that you're gonna bring us back to these ancient truths, um, that you're gonna shift hearts and minds and bind us closer together as your people, as your family, and as the body of Christ. So Lord, I pray even today um, for each one of us, would you give us a, a glimpse of what you might want us to learn Uh, over these coming months, Um, the things that you want to invite us to step deeper into, or the things perhaps that you want us to let go of um, in order to take up this call to be part of your church. So may the words of my lips and the meditation of all of our hearts be ever pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Who loves a map? I love a map. Here's a map for you. (laughs) This is Galatia. Um, And this is a good map because it's in German. I think. Maybe it's Dutch. I don't know. They're both excellent at making maps. The Germans and the Dutch both. Um, so I always, you know, I think it's really important, especially when we're uh, doing this kind of deep dive on scripture, that we gather all of the surrounding context for what's happening before we jump into a passage of scripture. Because I think a lot of times, and especially um, kind of in, in the modern American church, we're, we're kind of we're conditioned to think, I open the Bible, I read it, and the first question is, How does this apply to my life? And that's a lot of times where we do damage uh, to the scripture, certainly, but even to ourselves, um, because we're not taking into account everything that's happening around this scripture. And we've said it before that the scriptures. Um, are not written to us, but they are written for us. Like we're kind of peering in, especially with like the letters of Paul, for example. We're peering in at these con- ongoing conversations in the first church um, that have all of these conversations baked into them that we're not privy to. But we're we're kind of inclining our ear to hear what's happening there, uh, so that we can really begin to see how might that uh, speak into our modern lives today. And it, it's good because it helps us um, to not make the mistake sometimes of automatically asking 21st century questions of first century sacred texts and just expecting there to be this one-to-one transference. Um, So the letter to the Galatians, this is Galatia. You can kind of see those three highlighted pieces in the middle um, of what we would now consider Turkey. You can see Ephesus over there on the far uh, west. You can see up in the top there where uh, eventually uh, Constantinople, which is now Istanbul, uh, would be established. So Galatia is kind of this middle piece of uh, what we consider Turkey. So you kind of come up around the Landish the, uh, Mir, or the Mediterranean Sea, as some of you peons would say, into, Galatia, into Turkey, and the Galatians are there. Now the Galatians are Celtic people. How many of you are of, of Celtic descent? Probably most of you. So at this point in the, in, in the world, the Celts kind of went, moved from Turkey all the way over to Spain, up into northern Europe, uh, and of course, over into the British Isles, where we best know them from. And so Galatia, at this time, in the first century, was a real mix of Celtic people groups, um, of Romans, where the empire was constantly expanding from Italy into what we, they would consider the known world. Um, the Greeks, which are just to the left of this area, so there's a lot of Greek influence here, especially in philosophy and trade. Uh, and then Jews that have been kind of moved through the diaspora. There's a lot of uh, Greek-speaking Jews in this area. So you've got a in this community or these communities. There's a real mix of people groups, of ethnicities, of ways of being in the world of religions, all of this is kind of mixed up in this. And you can go uh, online, you can see this, perhaps the Bible that you have with you uh, will show you that Paul made several uh, mission trips where he kind of begins uh, his mission in in Judea, in Jerusalem, and he kind of works his way up through the, uh, the area of Galatia around Greece and then kind of back. And so he's gone through several times. He's established churches in this area. And a lot of his letters are letters written to churches that he's already established where he's picking up conversations that he probably had with them the first time he was there or um, they're, you know, kind of writing to him, giving him updates. He's like, okay, here's a few things that we need to address. The letter to the Galatians is fascinating because uh, most all of Paul's letters begin uh, in a very traditional way. They say, you know, to, uh, to the brothers and sisters in the city of so-and-so, like Paul, an apostle of Christ, bid you greetings. And there's a little bit of flattery. And he's like, OK, let's get down to the business. That doesn't happen in Galatians, which indicates Paul is already really, really livid uh, with this community because they've um, they just really missed the mark. He just begins to hammer them right from the beginning. So that in and of itself sets the letter to the Galatians up uh, differently than you might see in some of the others. So what happened was Paul comes in, he begins to establish these communities in Turkey with these, these mix of peoples, Jews and Greeks and Celts and Romans, um, he preaches to them the gospel, they're gathering together, they're establishing these new communities but then these uh, Judaizers or agitators come in behind Paul. And these were Jews that believed that Jesus was the Messiah that was proclaimed. Um, but they, they're interacting with some of these communities that aren't entirely Jewish. They're, they're welcoming in Gentiles and they're saying, oh, well, Paul preached half a gospel to you. Like, yes, Jesus is the Messiah. Yes, of course, there's grace. But you also have to be circumcised and you also have to follow the Torah in order to be really faithful. So what these agitators were doing is saying, well, really, you need to be messianic Jews. And this uh, maze makes Paul absolutely livid because it begins to run contrary to the message that he's proclaiming about the Messiah. He's saying, no, there's, it to, and most of what the letter is really is Paul saying, if you're to take up all of this stuff again, you're, you're binding yourself to all of these rules and the regulations, especially he has a lot to say about circumcision. He's like, you know, as for any of you that want to get circumcised, you should go the whole way and just cut the whole damn thing off. If that's what you really want. I mean, this is that's sacred scripture y'all. Okay. I'm, I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's how it goes because he's so passionate about this point. He's like, do you Want, you've been set free, you're in this new relationship with the God revealed in Jesus. Do you really want to be bogged down again by rules and regulations? And so he's really walking a fine line because he says, Listen, the Torah, the law, it was good and it was beautiful for two reasons. Number one, it was helping to recondition a broken people to get us. Uh, in touch with God and to help us to live a life worthy of the calling he's given us. But the law was also good because it, it made us realize how we cannot achieve salvation through the law. And he's kind of working both of those ideas at the same time and saying, ultimately the law set the stage for God to reveal himself through Jesus as the ultimate understanding of what he's really like. And that's the highest thing that we we are called to. And so when we set our sights lower to saying, oh, but at the end of the day, it really is about circumcision. It really is about following the rules. Then we're undoing this radical revelation that we have in Jesus. So what the connotations of these agitators, especially in the church in Galatia, um, is that the church was very divided about who's following the law and who's not who is behaving themselves, and being good little Christian boys and girls, and who are not being good little Christian boys and girls. And it was starting to establish these kind of hierarchical understandings, who's in and who's out, who's a better Christian, who's not so good of a Christian. And that's the real passion that Paul is bringing to this letter, and that's why he's so furious. So, like I said, we're gonna be looking at one of the very last portions of uh, of the letter, and I encourage you this week, perhaps, read all of Galatians in one go, um, and each week, we're going to read this portion, again, for three months, just 10 verses. Um, we'll be looking at other scriptures as well. But, and we're going to look at it in different, uh, different translations because I think that's always helpful. Um, but this week, starting in, we're going to be looking at Eugene Peterson's translation in the message because I really, I really love the way that he phrases this. I feel like it um, kind of makes it come alive in a way that for many of us, if we're so used to the way that perhaps like the NIV, uh, translates things. We can, we can get a little, you know, get a little lost perhaps. And so I think this is really revitalizing. So this is Galatians six, one through 10 in the message, brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the spirit should restore that person gently, but watch yourselves. or you also may be tempted? Carry each other's burdens and in this way, you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks they are something when they are not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else for each one should carry their own load. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. So one of the things that Jonathan and I have been talking about a lot as we were kind of shaping this series is there's a real sense in our community that a lot of you, you've chosen in and you've decided to make this home and you've decided to be here for the long term, but you're feeling the pressure of what it means to let people in. And to be around the same people week in and week out. Um, there's, something, there's something alluring about that initial contact in, with new people, and it's kind of exciting, and you're you know, meeting new people and all that. And then when you're expected to live life alongside of those people, that, that veneer can tend to fade. And all of a sudden, you're just stuck with these same people. And that's where a lot of the tension comes from. It's uncomfortable. Uh, to allow ourselves to be seen. It's uncomfortable for us to be expected to step into other people's worlds and to be a loving and kind presence to them. And there has been, over this past six months, I'd say, there's been a lot of relational tension in our community. Um, I've spent a lot of time with many of you helping you process some of the, the, especially in some of our community groups, like the feelings of just kind of missing each other or hurting each other with your words or disappointing one another. We've talked a lot about disappointment and disillusionment over the past year. And a lot of times we're, I think we're wired to look at that kind of engagement and say, wow, we must be failing because there's all this tension in our church like that we must be failing because we don't have exactly all the same doctrinal beliefs and statements, or we must be failing because we get angry at each other, or we must be failing because we don't really know how to work through conflict. And that's oftentimes when we decide, oh, I'm going to go find a better church where everybody obviously is as perfect as me, if not more perfect, and there will be no tension and everything will be rainbows and butterflies. What if what if relational tension in a community is actually a sign that we're on the right track, Amen. right? Because we're choosing into one another, like we're making covenant with each other to say, "I'm not going anywhere." And I think that that's the most loving thing that we can offer one another to say, "I'm not." I I was um, just I had a, a, a difficult situation. I was talking to a friend of mine who's a, a therapist and a pastor in town, and I was like, "What would you recommend?" He said. He said, your presence to this person has to be the same. It is for everybody. It's number one, I will always tell you the truth. And number two, I'm not going anywhere. And to be able to communicate that kind of consistency to one another is what we're called to. And so I think that a lot of the tensions that we feel, the hurt feelings, the misunderstandings, um, that maybe that itchiness that some of you might feel to to cut and run or uh, to not, Follow through on those consistent rhythms you've established with Sunday mornings, or whenever your community group might be, or whatever it is. Um, it's a sign that we're actually on the right track. Because if we were going to keep everything on the surface levels of community and just come in here and just all like smile at each other and be like, "Good to see you, brother! Like, welcome!" You know, "Hey, too blessed, blessed to be stressed." If we just like continue to live that, <laughs> like, there'd be no problems. But it doesn't mean that we're necessarily any closer to Jesus, and it certainly doesn't mean that we're closer to one another. And I think what happens over time, you know, and I would say takes about six months to get really uncomfortable, um, because it's about six months that a lot of our defense mechanisms and our coping mechanisms begin to come to the surface. And we realize we're numbing, we're holding people at arm's length. Um, our language betrays the fact that we're trying to protect ourselves from others, whatever it might be. Um, And so the invitation from the spirit in those moments is, are you going to address the ambivalence that you feel about community? Now, this is one of the most profound things I've learned about this idea of ambivalence. Um, Often we think ambivalence means I could take it or I could leave it, like whatever. That's what we think ambivalence means. But I remember Dan Allender talking about um, his granddaughter, uh, and he offered her like a cookie or something. And she's like five. And she says, Poppy, I want it, and I also don't want it. And he said, that's what ambivalence is. Now you and I, that's what we feel when it comes to community, right? When it comes to being close to other people, when it comes to being loved by others, we want it and also we don't want it. And we don't want to admit that because we know we're supposed to want people, we're supposed to love people, we're supposed to let people love, like we're so conditioned by the supposed to's that we don't actually name the ambivalence that we begin to feel in community. And I think that that actually, To ignore that sense of ambivalence is what makes us often shut down, pull away, move on, look for greener pastures. And so to to choose in and to be here for the long haul, to allow God to do something in you through the people that he's bound you to, begins to expose your coping mechanisms, your defense mechanisms of why you live out of that subconscious ambivalence. To say I want people to come close and also I don't want people to come close. And I think that sets the stage really beautifully uh, for us understanding this passage of scripture. So in the NIV the, the, one, the one line that I think is especially potent is this. Carry each other's burdens and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. For each one should carry their own load. Now how many of you when we read that you said well that feels like a paradox. Like we're supposed to carry one another's burdens and we're supposed to carry our own burdens. Like what, what is that? What's the difference there? But again, I think this is the genius of Paul is that so often he says something and there's like a thousand questions that come after it. He goes, yep, go figure it out. You got to learn it by doing it. And so how do you maneuver the space between your burdens and the burdens of others? That's what we're going to be focusing on in this series, another way of thinking about it is where does personal responsibility end and communal responsibility begin? Which is a, just a big conversation in society in general. Um, how much am I responsible for my own actions, or how much is society responsible for the decisions that we make? And I don't think it's actually either or. I think there's a creative tension there for us to explore. And one of the One of the ways of reading this passage of scripture is that Paul uses these words, burden and load, that he says each one should carry their own load. That's kind of like a knapsack or like a day pack or a backpack. Um, And then burden is a little bit more like, um, you know, uh, one of those like huge, you know, um, storage units that might be like on a, on a, um, on a stretch or something. If you think about like in the military, you'd have your personal bag, but then you're, you're, you're carrying something that requires at least two soldiers to carry it. And so he starts to speak about it in those terms. And I think that helps us parse through what he's really talking about. So I want to take a moment, and we're going to talk about what are the differences, like what's in my knapsack, and then what is in that shared burden. So let's begin with the backpack. All right. That's for some of you you young kids. So what are the kind of things that are in my pack? Now, again, this is a gross oversimplification. You will find that the line between personal responsibility, communal responsibility, it's not clear, okay? And it varies from person to person. But the things that you carry in your backpack are the kind of day-to-day things. These are, these are normal, everyday You're having an average day. These are the kind of things you're responsible for. Let's see what we got first. All right. Your personal history. Oh, no? Oh, Oh, yes. History. So this is your family of origin, um, your cultural background. Um, These are your mother wounds and your father wounds. Those all belong here. Like, your history belongs to you. And it's your responsibility to go through those things and to own them. Let's see what else we got here. Sin. Sin is your responsibility. Nobody else makes you sin. Like that's your thing to own. And the more that you can name. And again, I've said before, like, I think I like Richard Rohr's translational. He says sin is when we overdo our strengths. When we rely on ourselves too much to make things happen in the world. And we try to control the world. That's when we sin. That's your responsibility. What else we got? Your personality, your personality, that is your responsibility. The way that you move through the world, the way that you interpret the world, the energy you put back out into the world, um, your energy levels, um, your centers of intelligence, all of those things, that's your responsibility. And again, like I said, I think it was even last week, like Ian Morgan Cron, the Episcopal priest who's an Enneagram teacher says, your personality is the story that you tell yourself that runs contrary to the story of grace. So your, res- your personality is your own responsibility. What's this one? Thoughts. Your thoughts are your responsibility. I like when Paul says in, in another letter, he says, take every thought captive. Now, it's not a sin to have thoughts, but it's a, it's a, it can be uh, dangerous when we allow our thoughts to control us and to recognize I am not my thoughts. Now those things come from the outside, that's real. But what happens in your interior world ends up being your responsibility. What else? Your time. Your time is your responsibility. Okay. It's like uh, Eugene Peterson said, the second greatest gift that God ever gave you was a calendar. And I think so often what happens is we abdicate responsibility for time to, uh, to other relationships and the expectations around us. And we just say, oh, I'm sorry. I wish I could do this, that, and the other. But I just don't have any time. It's being taken from me. And you have autonomy. You have responsibility to manage your time. And if you had children, that was your choice. <laughs> you take everything that comes with you and that. How about this one? Boo? <laughs> Who said boo? That sounds like Marshall. <laughs> your feelings are your responsibility. You can't say to somebody, you made me feel this way. No, they didn't. They, they could have been a jerk to you, or they could have been really mean to you, or, or whatever it is. But your emotional response is something that you have to own. And we're going to be talking about this one a lot. Because we live in an era of emotivism, which is kind of the the like little brother of the romantic movement that says, I feel, therefore I am. And whatever I'm feeling in the moment is the truest thing about me and about the world around me. And so I'm just working my way through the world, measuring everything by what I feel. Uh, We've even talked about this a little bit. I said, you know, in that uh, Q and A I had about faith and politics, someone asked me about, um, you know, it's hard for me to engage in politics. I feel it robs me of my peace. What do I do? And I said, I want to challenge. What do you mean? What do you mean when you say peace? Because I think you actually mean comfort, which is a feeling. Um, And that's not what we're called to. Peace is actually something far grander. And so I think when we move through life just thinking, does this bring me peace or does this not bring me peace? What we actually mean is, what is this making me feel? Is it making me feel bad feelings or good feelings? And that's not how we're called to live. So your feelings are your responsibility and your limits. My pastoral coach said, the greatest gift that you can offer your people is your own limitations. Um, and we need to see our, our limits not as curses, um, but as a part of what it means to be a human being, that we all have limitations. And that should be, that should be uh, mitigating how we say yes and no to things, protecting margins in our lives to be ready for the chaos of modern life. And when we go beyond our limits, or another way to maybe say this would be boundaries... When we continually abdicate those things to other people, to other agendas, we hurt ourselves, but we end up hurting the people around us. And we and perhaps most importantly, we don't make the time to be with God that we really need to. So we need to learn how to bless our limitations as human beings because nobody can do that for us. Now sometimes there are things that won't fit in a backpack. Backpack. <laughs> and I, I wish I had like a gigantic cool duffel bag or something for this, but I don't. I just I just have this poster board. So let's see. What are some of the things? If these are like the loads, this is your normal, everyday knapsack stuff. That's your responsibility. What are the things that we have to own together? Again, that kind of that, you know, those military images of them like grabbing, um, you know, a huge stretcher that's full of supplies that requires at least two people to carry it. Like one person can't do it on their own. What are those kinds of things? Let's see. Forgiveness. Oh. Yeah. Forgiveness is something that we carry for one another. And this is what Paul is even saying at the very beginning of this passage is that we forgive one another. We restore each other that requires forgiveness, requires another person. And you and I, we've been given the power through the spirit of Jesus to forgive one another's sins. What does that mean? It means to forgive, to, to let go, to offer something even potentially before it's asked to allow someone to continue on their journey towards wholeness. What else? Crisis. Crisis belongs to all of us. And what does this mean? This means like when there's a catastrophic disaster, like, you know, that's that, I think it's, it's probably just another one of these self-help lies that works this way into Christianity, but like God will never give you more than you can handle. And that's one of, yeah, right? It's one of those things that we often think of as individuals, like I should be capable as this like autonomous unit milling about amongst all these other autonomous units to handle whatever God gives me. And that's not true. Sometimes there's things that happen in our lives that are so heavy, they're so traumatic that we can't carry it by ourselves and we need people to come around us. And so each of you have an obligation to one another that when crisis strikes, we gather around and we support one another in that and however we can. Now, part of that is knowing what the limitations are of what we can offer each other. How many of you are licensed therapists? What half of a hand, another one up there. Okay, so none of y'all should be diagnosing each other. First, you know but knowing what am i called to give and what, what am i not called to give is so important when it comes to crisis. But here's another one, conflict. Raise your hand if you've ever been in conflict with a person in this church. Raise your hand of that person sitting next to you. <laughs> we sometimes when it comes to conflict, we put all the work on the other person's side of the fence, right? And sometimes that's true. But almost always it's not true. And I think especially married couples in here, you'll you'll know that like when you really do the work of working through conflict, it's almost never that one person's one hundred percent responsible and the other person is zero percent responsible. Like it's this it's this unit, like you are working together, and so we have to own conflict together. Got a few more. I'm excited to see what these say. Oh <gasps> raising children. How many of you were a child at some point? Yeah, I'm always very fond of saying it takes a village to raise an idiot. Um, again, in our modern life, I was actually talking to somebody about this yesterday. I think we've made so many uh, forward movements in civilization that I think are inherently wonderful. But I do think that one of the things we've kind of lost is that sense of communal ownership, um, especially of, of raising children, of, an, of us investing Uh, in other people's children, like as part of our village. And I think a lot of you as parents, you probably feel that pressure. Like I am solely responsible for the upbringing of my children. And it's that kind of siloed mentality. And I think that's tragic. And even like, this is one of the things that we advocate for in our greenhouse kids ministries. Like it's all of us raising these children together to know Jesus. And I think that that's something that we should all own together. Let's see. Ah, loneliness. Raise your hand if you've ever felt lonely, okay? And I wouldn't say it's just loneliness. It's any of these kind of phenomena, these existential um, situations that we find ourselves in that beg the presence of another person. That's what we are obligated to one another for. So when someone feels lonely, where they feel disconnected or separated, it's our job to build the bridge. And so many of you, I, I watch you, you know, when, whether you notice it or not. Um, and I keep a little scorecard uh, in the back of, because you know Christianity is like an SAT test every day. Um, but I watch so many of you, you do this, you build bridges, you reach out to those who, who might seem lonely or disconnected or whatever it is, and you draw them in, and that's an incredibly important part of being the church. And then finally, encouraging. It doesn't say encouragement because I ran out of space. Uh, do you guys know that John Mulaney joke he's talking about like birthday cards? He's like, I got this, big old B. And then you're like, E, A, U. And then you're like, L's stacked over each other. So we're, we are for one another's encouraging. <laughs> um, and again, this is, you know, a lot of times we talk about accountability. Sometimes we think like that just means that we've got to wrap each other on the knuckles whenever we sin. And we've got to hold each other accountable and this sort of thing, you know? And I think a lot of times, Uh, the moral posturing that we do as Christians is more to keep one another in check than it is any semblance of like trying to be a shining light to the world, which I think is really sad. Um, And I think encouragement and exhortation being part of that conversation around accountability um, is as important, if not more. So in our community group this week, we were talking about like part of our role is to remind one another of who we truly are when we forget. And that's what we need one another for. I need you when I forget who I am, when I begin to believe these lies about my identity, that I am what I produce, or I'm, I'm what I have, or I'm what other people say to me. I need you to come alongside of me and say, I'm going to remind you that you are the beloved of God. And that is a gift to be received. It is not something that you can earn at all. And so we need that level of encouragement from one another. But we have to remember, what is the goal of all of this? Like, what is community for? It's for wholeness. Another way of saying it is for shalom. It's for peace. And that's union with God. And it's union with one another. And it's union within ourselves. That we've all been fractured by this world. And we're looking to repair those breaches. And so maturity can be understood as this journey towards wholeness. And there comes a point in all of us that our maturity means that we help other people mature. We help other people to become whole. So there's kind of three main things that we're going to be looking at over the next three months uh, in this. Uh, Number one is going to be uh, for us as individuals, like what's in your backpack? Uh, Number two, what is it that we own together? And then number three, why do we do this stuff in the first place? So number one, to be a generous community, we must each take responsibility for our own lives. So if maturity is that journey toward wholeness, um, immaturity is where we maintain a sense of uh, separateness or brokenness, and we allow that to de- de- define us. A lot of times, I, th- I, I notice in myself and other people that immaturity is when I blame other people for the things that are actually mine to own. Okay. That's what I think is a really good measure of immaturity. If I'm constantly saying, well, it's somebody else's fault that I am the way that I am. And again, this is not cut and dry. Like We are the products of our environment. Uh, We are the products of our family of origin, of our cultural orientation, whatever it might be. But there comes a place where I'm actually refusing to take account of how those things have affected me um, and how I live day to day, believing certain lies about myself, where I change from a a very valid potential where I have been victimized to living out of a victimhood mentality, which says who I really am is a victim. I have been, I am the product of all of these people's decisions, and I don't have any sense of ownership for that. And one of the things I find very problematic in the modern era, especially on social media, is this, this pop psychology phenomenon that we see um, where people are so quick to self-diagnose, um, to, to use psychological labels to describe uh, ways that they feel. Um, and there's been, fortunately, a lot of psychologists that have come forth to say this is very problematic when we use some of this terminology. Um, because what happens so often is, first of all, when we self-diagnose, we're probably going to get it wrong. I love. I saw this psychologist the other day. She said she's like, we got to stop labeling everybody narcissist. She said some people are just a holes. <laughs> I was like, that's great. Um, but it, we're we're so we're we're all looking for reasons why we are the way that we are, and we use very particular words that have very particular scenarios in more broad uh, arenas. So another example would be when we talk about being triggered, or when we talk about something being trauma, or when we talk about a group of people being a cult. Like these words have very, very specific clinical meanings. And when we misuse psychological words to try to explain who we are, it has several negative connotations. First off, if you cannot accurately name it, you can't actually heal from it. So if you misdiagnose or you misread your own story using some of the psychological language or the language that you find on social media, you might actually be dishonest with your story to a degree that you can't own it and you can't uh, heal from it. Number two, you, it is good. Um, number two, you often uh, will you'll bind yourself to a narrative where you preemptively start looking for things um, that reinforce what you've determined that you believe about yourself. Um, So there's a lot of research going on right now in this regard when we continually tell groups of people, no, this is who you are and these are the people that are against you and this is what you've got to be looking for. It actually conditions us to go out into the world more anxious uh, because we're looking for um, examples of places that we're going to be taken advantage of or people that are after us or wherever it might be. Uh, And thirdly, it devalues the stories of people who actually are experiencing those things. And I think that's probably the saddest bit of it all. Um, you know, I, we're, we're in the, like, kind of in this era of deconstruction. There's a lot of language that comes around that. Again, a lot of it is a necessary uh, reality. Like, things are being revealed. Um, but the amount of people, it worries me, the amount of people who talk about uh, spiritual or church abuse, they say, well, I've been abused by the church. I remember talking to somebody about it. They said, they said, well, I've been abused by the church. I said, what happened? They said, well, my youth pastor had an affair. I said, OK. So how were you abused by the church? You were disappointed by church leadership. That's what happened to you, and that's real. But to say you were abused by the church, or even when people say, and I, this always kind of gets my goat when people are like, well, you know, the, the, the American church is XYZ. What do you mean by that, the American church? Do you, are Catholics part of that, or the Orthodox? or black churches, or house churches, or who are you talking about? And it's when we use that general language, we actually hurt the people who genuinely have been abused in spiritual situations. We say, oh no, their story's my story. And it's like, I don't know if that's honest to you, and I don't know if that's honest to them. But ultimately, what happens a lot with the language that we use is we abdicate responsibility for the things that are ours to own in our story so that we can mature. We define ourselves by those things, and we begin to use them for excuses to not grow, rather than reasons that we have for what it looks like for us to mature. And so I found it incredibly important over the years, I use the serenity prayer. One o'clock every day my phone goes off and I pray the serenity prayer and it says, Lord, grant me the serenity to accept the things that I cannot control, the courage to change the things that I can and the wisdom to know the difference. And that's really what that personal responsibility part is. What is mine to do? And what's actually not mine to do? What is outside of my control? And how do I gain the wisdom to be able to discern those things? So first, we take responsibility for our own lives. Secondly, to be a generous community must mean, means that we must be ready to carry one another's burdens. Another phenomenon of modern life is that we overprotect ourselves from one another, that we, uh, we silo ourselves. Um, and so what often happens here is we hold people at arm's length and say, well, that's your problem. Like That's not my responsibility. Um, friend of mine in Nashville she's kind of doing the online dating thing and she'll tell me she'll start talking to someone and they'll like talk about some of their problems and she'll start to catastrophize and she'll be like well if they're expecting me to like step in and like be the, and I'm not going to be their mother and blah, blah 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 I'm like slow down slow down people are people and people and like not every problem somebody has is automatically a red flag again pop psychology stuff being drawn into like everyday life it's like it's, it's cuz it's like you marriage is not Uh, like a uh, contractual obligation to a roommate, as Father John Misty says, you know, where it's like, you've got your work on your side of the fence and I've got my work on my side, and we'll just do our work kind of in proximity to one another. Like when you engage in relationship, I think especially marriage, but it's really any kind of loving relationship, you own to some degree what's happening in your person's life, right? Like at the end of the day, it's not your responsibility, but you're also not completely siloed. And, that, and it's recognizing like we are made for one another at the end of the day. But what happens so often today in this era of, of, of siloing is this kind of moral purism that we have, that whenever there's failure in a relationship or an organization, we hold them at arm's length and say, well, I'm no longer associated with that group of people over there. And we see this in the church a lot of times. And I think again, it's that problem with evangelicalism. It's like I have been chosen. I chose something, so I can choose out. Um, And we, we kind of other parts of the church that we don't like, rather than taking responsibility to say, no, this is us collectively. Like, well, they don't get to be part of this. Or like I saw it a lot over um, Fourth of July weekend. People like America doesn't deserve a birthday. You know, because of all the things are happening, America doesn't deserve a birthday. I'm eating this hot dog, but. Not for America. I'm enjoying these fireworks, but it's got nothing to do with America. And you're like, you know, that's actually one of the problems I had with what the president said after January 6, when he's like, this isn't us. It's like, sorry, Joe. This is us. And if we don't own that, it's just going to keep happening. And so there's this moral purism where we hold at arm's length people who don't meet our expectations, say, well, we're not associated with those people. And there's this kind of vindictiveness that erases all uh, of the dire need we have for forgiveness and grace, because we want to float above the fray as if we're better than them. Like they don't deserve us to be part of them. I've made several references to him before, but the theologian Miroslav Volf in his book, Exclusion and Explosion, and embrace is talking about this kind of the shared identity it says we are who we are, not because we're separate from the others who are next to us, but because we're both separate and connected, both distinct and related. The boundaries that mark our identities are both barriers and bridges. I know that many of you have experienced that strange potency that comes in community where we're interconnected. So several years ago, Oh, we had a community group um, at my house. Megan was part of it. And um, our dear friends, Mark and Shannon, had a miscarriage. And then they had another miscarriage, and then another miscarriage. And it was this moment in our group where we we're like, are we, are we going to go there? Are we going to talk about it and like, seek to be present to people that we claim to love? Or are we just gonna say, well, I'm sorry, that's not my responsibility. You need to go and find other people to talk about that. Like, so let's just keep talking about Christian-y things and make ourselves feel good on Thursdays instead of actually engaging in some of this, like in real existential crisis. And thank God it was one of those moments where in our group, we all looked at each other and said, yeah, we're gonna go there and we're all really scared and we don't know what to say or we don't know what to do and we're definitely going to mess this up and say the wrong things sometimes but there becomes that collective ownership to say we own one another. God has given us to each other. I think in the same way that our identity as the beloved is a gift that we receive our communal identity, like to be part of the church. It's a gift that you received to be part of the community. The people in this room, they are a gift. You did not choose these people because if it was up to you, you wouldn't have chosen half of these people. In fact, I'll just give you the list right now. That, no, I'm just kidding. You, no. Robbie, you're my guy. You're in. You're in, buddy. You wouldn't have chosen half of these people. But is your life really that great if you just keep making all of the choices about who you rub elbows with, you know? And I think there comes this amazing transformation in us. In fact, I think that the primary way in which God brings us to maturity or sanctifies us or purifies us, whatever language you want to use, is through other people. And they're people that we would not have chosen, but they were chosen for us. And so in that portion, it's to know what is mine to give and what's not. And what are the reasonable expectations I can have of the people that I'm in community with? And finally, to be a generous community, we must keep King Jesus at the center and the goal of everything that we do. This whole project of growing in personal responsibility, and maturity of growing in communal responsibility to one another, it all falls apart if we don't have that north star of where it is that we're actually headed together. And a lot of times when it comes to personal growth or it comes to communal growth, what happens when we don't have that goal, that telos, that destination, is we turn inward on ourselves and we turn inward on one another. And so self-care becomes numbing. And community becomes vindictive. And all of these, these problems that we see in the way that we handle what is ours and what is, belongs to someone else, it's because we just turn inward. We don't have that set goal. And so we realize what Paul, the profundity of what Paul is saying here. He says, you, are so adamant about following the law and the rules and getting circumcised in Torah. He says to fulfill Christ's law is to carry one another's burdens. That is what you're created for. That is what you are designed for. And so this whole series is going to be about seeking that shalom union, that wholeness that comes from being an intimate relationship with God uh, to be in relationship with one another and to be in relationship with ourselves. So I want to invite you to stand with me and we're going to step into a time of worship. Um, I'm going to invite the elders and some of our uh, church leaders to come to either side. And um, if there's anything that the Lord is stirring up in you, if you need uh, you need to ask the Lord for something for wisdom or, uh, for a miracle in your life. That's what these people are here for. If you just need a blessing, you just need someone to lay hands on you, to remind you of who you are. That's what these people are here for as well, but they will be very happy to take you down either hallway, um, and, and to lay hands and pray over you for the rest of you as we're worshiping. Um, I want you to be able to ask the Lord, like God, give me, give me a map of where map door, the Explorer. That's funny. Um, give me a map of where you want to take me over this next several months. Like what are some of the things that maybe I've known or in the background that you're bringing to the foreground saying it's time to really look at this piece, like this part of the load that I've been called to carry or this part of the communal burden that I'm called to share and just ask the Lord to begin to speak to you in that regard so that, When you come in week after week, your eyes are open and you have this, this expectancy to see God move. And so let's pray. So father, again, on the advent of this new series, I pray that you would bless our journey as a community. That as we move forward in this story together, that you would be unearthing things in each one of us that need dealt with the things that you're asking us to carry that are our responsibility. But that you in that you would also allow us to, um, to own our stuff so that we can get out of the way and we can love each other really well. Um, to see all of us raise up in maturity in Christ Jesus. And so, Holy Spirit, Spirit of Jesus, right now I pray that you would alight upon each of your dear ones here. Begin to speak to us about what this journey might look like, so that we know what to expect and more deeply still, we know how to trust you to lead us wherever we may go. We thank you, Lord, for this time and this place. We give you permission to move. We pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Let's worship. This has been the City Beautiful Church podcast. To stay connected, follow us on social everywhere at Ch. We hope you join us again soon.